Welcome to the Break Things on Purpose podcast, a show about chaos engineering and operating reliable systems. In this episode, Anna Medina is joined by Carmen Sainz, a senior DevOps engineer at Apex Clearing Corporation. Carmen shares her thoughts on what cloud native engineers can learn from our on-prem past, how she learned to do DevOps work, and what reliable IT systems look like in higher education. Hey, everyone, we have a new podcast today. We have an amazing guest. We have Carmen Science joining us. Carmen, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? A quick intro? Sure. I am Carmen Science. I live in Chicago, Illinois, born and raised on the South Side. I am currently a senior DevOps engineer at Apex and have been in high-frequency trading for 11 out of 12 years. DevOps engineers, those are like definitely the type of work that we love diving in on, making sure that we're keeping those systems up to date. But that really brings me into one of the questions we love asking about. We know that in technology, we sometimes are fighting fires, making sure our engineers can deploy quickly and keep collaboration around. What is one incident that you've encountered that kind of has marked your career? What exactly happened that led up to it? And how is it that your team went ahead and discovered the issue? One of the incidents that happened to us was, it was around close to the beginning of the teens of 2008, 2009. And I was working at a high frequency trading firm in which we had an XML configuration that needed to be deployed to all this, all the machines that are on-prem at the time, this is before cloud, that needed to connect to the exchanges where we can trade. And one of the things that we had to do is that we had to add specific configurations in order for us to keep track of our trade position, right? One of the things that happened was certain machines get a certain configuration, other machines get another configuration. That configuration wasn't added for some machines. And so when it was deployed, we realized that they were able to connect to the exchange and they were starting to trade right away. Luckily, someone noticed some external system that we weren't getting the positions updates. So then we had to bring down all these on-prem machines by sending out a a bash script to hit all these specific machines to kill the connection to the exchange. Luckily, it was just the beginning of the day and and it wasn't so crazy. So we were able to kill them within that minute timeframe before it went crazy. We realized that one of the big issues that we had was, one, we didn't have a configuration management system in order to check to make sure that the configurations we needed were there. The second thing that we were missing is a second pair of eyes. We needed someone to actually look at the configuration, PR it, and then push it. And once it's pushed, then we should have had a third person as they were going to the deployment system to make sure that this was a new change that needed to be in place. So we didn't have the measures in place in order for us to actually make sure that these configurations are correct. And it was chaos, right? Because you can lose money because you're down when the trading was starting in the day. And it was just a simple mistake of not knowing these machines needed a specific configuration. So it was kind of intense, those good five minutes. <laughs> so amazing that y'all were able to catch it so quickly because the first thing that comes to mind, as you said, before the cloud on-prem, and it's like, do we start need to make in BC, like before cloud times when we talk about incidents? Because I think we do. When we look at the world that we live in now in a more cloud native space, you tell someone about this incident, they're going to look at us and say, 
what do you mean? I have containers that manage all my config management. Everything's going to roll out. Or I have observability that's going to make us be resilient to this so that we detect it earlier. So with something like chaos engineering, if something like this was to happen in an on-prem type of data center, is there something that chaos engineering could have done to help prepare you all or to avoid a situation like this? Yeah, one of the things that I believe chaos engineering, for what it's worth, I didn't actually know what chaos engineering was till 2012. And the specific thing that you mentioned is actually what they were testing. We had a test system. So we had all these on-prem machines and different co-locations in the country. And we would take some of our test systems, not the production because that was money-based, but our test systems that were on simulated exchanges. And what would we do to test and make sure our code was up to date is we actually had a chaos monkey to break the configuration. We actually had a chaos monkey and it would just pick a random function to run that day. It would be either send a bad config to a machine or bring down a machine by disconnecting its connection, doing a networking change in the middle to see how it would react. And it will pick any machine in our simulation. And then we had to see how it, it was going to react with the changes that was happening. We had to deduce, we had to figure out how to roll it back. And, and those are the things that we didn't have at the time. In 2012, this was another company I was working for in high frequency trading. And they implement that, implemented chaos engineering in that simulation specifically for then we would catch these problems before we hit production. So yeah, that's definitely was needed. That's super awesome that a failure you encountered four years prior to your next company, you ended up realizing, wait, if this company actually follows what they do have of let's roll out a bad deploy, how does our system actually engage with it? That's such an amazing learning experience. Is there anything more recent that you've done in chaos engineering you'd want to share about? Actually, since I just started at this company a couple months ago, I haven't thankfully run into anything. <laughs> so a lot of my stories are more like war stories from the BC days. So, Do you usually work now mostly on on-prem systems or do you find yourself in hybrid environments or cloud type of environments? Recently in the last three to four years, I've been in cloud only. I rarely have to encounter on-prem nowadays, but coming from an on-prem world to a cloud world is, was completely different. And I feel with the tools that we have now, we have a lot of built-in checks and balances in which even with us trying to manually delete a node in our cluster, we can see our systems auto-heal because cloud engineering tries to attempt to take care of that for us. Or with, you know, infrastructure as code, we're able to redeploy at will. So with cloud infrastructure, a lot of what would cause me anxiety and give me more white hair is slightly lessened because of it. I love the way of putting it. The less amount of white hairs is because of cloud. So thank you all cloud providers. As this comes to mind and we think about your background of coming in from on-prem systems, is there anything that you've encountered in this cloud world that you think that's a gotcha? Like I've had an incident in bare metal that cloud is not really necessarily having a use case or a reliability mechanism built in just out of the box. It's easy to catch, but it's a gotcha at the same time. So when you come from on-prem into cloud, the networking is not all the same. The words are there from networking, like, gateway and firewall, click a few buttons as opposed to you running Arista commands versus on the on a router. 
And then you have your BPC, which you can say is that's your little world in your internal network. The words are there, but they're different in cloud. And that's the got me part of that transition. But at the same time, you have an easier way to visualize those things. For example, if my machine can't connect to another machine, are they in the same subnet? I don't have to run Arista commands to figure that out or look at the logs on the router. It's literally right there in front of me. So a lot of that pain that we would have to going, you know, switching from going to your Linux machine to then getting into the router and then running different commands. I feel like you needed to learn more commands and more and more different types of like languages of the things that you were using in order to interact with, as opposed to now in the cloud, I feel that those things are more blatantly in front of you to fix. They were a little bit more abstract in on-prem and that's why you would need someone like a network engineer more as opposed to a DevOps engineer who I feel like it's easier in that sense. So once you know it, you're able to solve those problems that you would need like a networking engineer for. I guess now when we look at the DevOps site reliability engineers of this cloud world or this hybrid world, you end up wearing a lot of hats and you end up having to master to an extent various levels of networking or knowing at least the operator side of how a lot of our infrastructure is running. It does bring me to the next question where you get a chance to come from that BC world before cloud. And we now see that a lot of DevOps SREs that are joining in, they come into the magic of the cloud. What do you think is one of the things that the engineers that are just getting started and are just touching the cloud are not getting a chance to dive into that the cloud abstraction layer really misses out on this amazing fundamental of the work that we do? I think it goes down to the nitty gritty, right? With DevOps, you wear many hats, right? You're good at everything, but not a master of one thing. You're a little bit of everything, master of none. Before cloud, even though the term DevOps didn't exist and you were called like an operations developer, operations engineer, you worked closely with the people who wore that one hat and you were working with them. And now that people are coming into the cloud only with no on-prem, they get the layers abstracted of what is the three-way handshake in networking? What is indexes really used for in databases? How do you know that you're not using, it's doing a linear search because your indices are incorrect in your database versus doing an algorithmic search with that specific algorithm, that specific query language is using, right? Those are things that are so abstracted, but are still very necessary because you may have to work with an on-prem system that connects to your cloud infrastructure and you may need to use Wireshark. Who still uses that? But you do. There's systems, older mainframe systems that mainly finance uses or there's still cobalt systems out there, right? So I feel that that's what's missing from being in cloud, but I hope that education in, in, in other programs and Coursera's and Linda's that if people feel like they're lacking in something, they're able to go and learn those fundamentals somewhere. I know you love learning. Two things come to mind. Do you have any resources where DevOps and SREs can start learning more? And do you want to share with our listeners a little bit more about your passion and your path in learning? Sure. So a lot of the things that people look at are common things like Udemy. I feel that Udemy has a lot of great DevOps courses, believe it or not. I have used them to study. I've used them for refreshers. i came in with Amazon uh, cloud experience, but no Google cloud experience. So I basically took a Udemy to get my 
feet wet, as you would say, to get into that world. Linda's also good if you have your student ID email, you can get it for free. So (laughs) as a student now, I use that. And then there's just various resources. A good thing also like finding groups like Tequeria DevOps as well as Latinas in Tech and Tecnologicas. If you join groups where you meet other people who are starting in that space or have been in that space for a long time, they have good resources as well. But those are the resources. Do you want to share a little bit more about your path on learning about DevOps and what you're up to now? With DevOps, since I'm passionate in learning, because in DevOps, you have to always keep learning. As I was going through my education and even now being in the industry, is that I didn't know that many Latinas, especially back in the 2000s. What I noticed when I was in school is also that the majority of my teachers were men. They went to Harvard and MIT and they're great schools. The majority of them were, were Anglo men. And I never had a Latina teacher or any of that. And I said to myself that I wanted to be that teacher that I didn't have. So I started teaching part-time at my alma mater at Loyola University. And I loved it. And I loved, I taught like data structures in C plus in Java. I've taught DevOps classes. I've taught bash scripting. I've taught open source computing, intro to object-oriented programming. And I just loved engaging with students. I've noticed that I was missing something and I realized it was teaching being that difference, being that change, being the face that I didn't have. And I figured what's the best place in my alma mater to start that at. As I was doing this for like my fifth year, I realized that if I love it so much, I should do something about it, right? So I decided to get a PhD. So 10 years later, (laughs) I went back to school and I'm currently in my third year at DePaul University in Chicago as a PhD student working in the American Sign Language Lab avatar project, creating an avatar to do not just American Sign Language, but other sign languages. Yes, there are many different ones. And that's where I'm currently at now because I would love to teach again somewhere full-time, be it after industry or maybe at the same time I'm still in industry. Who knows what the path is? I love teaching and I love helping and I love engaging and I love technology. So that's why I wanted to go back to school and become a teacher at one point. So amazing to see your passions and your background come together into that mission of pushing forward the industry and bringing more representation to it. Definitely. Thanks. It's still a ride. I don't know what the outcome will be, but God knows. So I just hope that I pass my second exam for my PhD that's coming up in September. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you a lot of luck and I'm sure our listeners are also rooting for you. Are we going to be seeing uh, Dr. Carmen Sainz that's going to be teaching DevOps, teaching SRE, teaching chaos engineering, or would you stick to something more in ASL? I think a little bit of both. I think that the experience that I bring as a DevOps engineer is that some of these systems don't exist. Some of the stuff that I was doing that I brought to the lab was they already have the programmers that they don't have. They're running on a like a Windows machine in an internal network at school. So how can we make this widely available? So one of my posters that I did my second year was specifically in like engineering and architecting and infrastructure that can handle creating high visualizations with you know a GPU graphics card, but also being scalable 
and then it has to be GDP compliant because we work with European schools. So there was there is DevOps in my PhD. It's just a little hidden. But I'm hoping to that I continue to bring that to the table at, in my lab. And the work that I have won't just be in an, on an internal network in three years. I hope in three years you'll be able to, you all can connect to it and be like, that's the work her lab did. And we all know that the reason why it's visually seen by everybody was because Carmen was the one that created the infrastructure for it to work with a group of other engineers. So I'm hoping that I can bring my two loves together in, in that sense in three years time. I mean, I think you're already doing it. It's super amazing to just even hear when you get those learning stories of someone is an engineer in the industry, has 10 plus years, and then they go and they help a system that is not tied to our technology space, that is not running on the cloud, that they're running on just one Windows server and they're hoping to reach, what, 3,000 people a month? Like, how is that possibly even going to scale for them to be successful? So I think even you just going into the lab and putting in some of those DevOps principles. And I love also what you mentioned, you know, like how do you make it be a highly scalable system when you're running with so much GPUs and you have all these different types of compliance in it, which I think is always interesting when we talk about certain industries, whether it's healthcare or finance, that it's like, yes, we need to have compliance based on the data that we store But then there's certain regulations and government that might tell us we also might need to have a certain uptime or you might be breaching this type of service level agreement. So a lot of the things I'm used to is more internal in the sense of we need to keep our logs X amount of years and we need to know who logs into what machines. And so a lot of the compliance is pretty standard across the board for a lot of internal networks. But for something as big as this project for the PhD that I'm doing on, our group has to make sure the GDR compliance is very different, right? And what PIA, you know, what data do we have and how can we abstract it or, or break it down enough for then it won't actually go back to a person. And those are the things that I feel that I, I per se don't really have to deal with right now at work, but I have to deal with them at school. So there is a trade-off, like some things that I'm lacking at my position at work I actually have to think about working with different countries to to have this software and the things that they're lacking, like not having a scalable uptime system that people can communicate with. That is something that I do here at work. I'm trading off in both places. And compliance is very difficult to take it. That's chaos engineering too, because you're going to have to hire someone or third-party company or yourself have to literally attack your own system and see what you're missing and, and make sure you're compliant. And I think that's the, the beauty of also chaos engineering, like trying to figure that out and making sure that, <laughs> that you're good, you know? For these highly visual systems that you have in your PhD program, what are some of the unknowns that you've had to encounter as you're working on them, since they're not very similar to the stuff that you work on your day-to-day? I actually had to backtrack to my on-prem experience to a point. Unfortunately, the code was written in the late 90s, and it still uses like .NET some of it. And it uses an executable. I have to be built by my professor. They give me the EXE. I had to put it on the machine. And one of the things is in Amazon, right? They have your GPU systems, right? And you can say, I want this server with this graphics card and AMD and so forth. One of the things that a lot of people don't recall if they never worked on-prem systems is that drivers are problematic. 
And as I was trying to run this executable, I kept getting this error. And I was like, this has to be a driver issue. But how do you troubleshoot a driver on a cloud system that is pre-built for you? So like, <laughs> I was trying to figure it out. I'm like, is it the executable that, and how it was built on whatever machine? Or is it the machine that's in the cloud? And if it is, like, how do I update the driver? How do I downgrade the driver? And so I had to Google, like, how to downgrade drivers and, and VMs in the cloud. There's specific commands that you have to run that are AWS only. You don't have the manuability that you had when it's your on-prem system. Like, you just know you run a general AM, like AMD command or a general in- package installer for the driver. It's not the case all the time for cloud systems. You have to run a specific AWS command. Luckily, what what I found out was my professor, I brought it up to him and he's like, oh, I have this driver. You're using this driver. I need to do some magic on my end to build this executable and it should work on on the driver for this VM. And I was like, sure. But I didn't know how to troubleshoot those things in the cloud, but I knew how to troubleshoot them from back in the day when it was my on-prem system. So it's weird understanding that drivers are still an issue. You just didn't think so because they're so abstract nowadays. It's always interesting to remember where the abstraction layers push us forward in so many ways, but that they always bring this kind of catch on the other side of it of like, wait, no, now you actually don't get a chance to just drive over to your data center, switch out a certain type of resource. Oh, the cable is starting to look a little hot. Maybe we should switch it out. We now assume that a lot of these things are being handled for us. Yes. Do you have any advice on how do you maintain systems that you don't build? Or how is it that you can hand over things better when you're working with systems that are maybe, maybe even BC before cloud? I'm going to trademark this. (laughs) You should trademark it because seriously, that is such a great way to explain it. That was literally like what you do when you start a new job, right? They're like, there's this old system. You ask if there's any documentation. They usually laugh and chuckle at you. And (laughs) they give you some notes, dot text that some person left for you to look at. Do you have any infrastructure as code? They also might slightly chuckle at you and just give you some version that's 15 versions behind that if you try to plan it, it'll tell you you're missing 50 other things. So like you just have to work with what you got. And you're, the whole point of being a DevOps engineer is that you're investigate, investigate. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. And I think that's something I learned as I got older. I was always afraid to ask questions. And I was like, I always felt like people were going to like judge, judge the crap out of me because I, I was asking questions. But how are you going to understand a system that you didn't build and try to get into the head of the person that did build it in order for you to make it better. And and that's okay to ask those questions. And you should get those notes, that text, and that rando Terraform that only works for quarter of the things that were built and, and, and see what's missing and try to see if you can devise like a plan of attack of how are you going to break this down for yourself. And then there may, no be, there, there may not be no diagram. So... I'm not telling you use Creately or anything like that to diagram, but it's also good just to have a piece of paper and a pen and just start drawing some of that stuff out. And then a lot of it also is, okay, let's make a test. On Saturday, I'm going to bring this down, Chaos Engineering, and I'm going to see who yells about it. Who's going to care? Who's going to care if I break this? And that's how you know who are the stakeholders. Sometimes that's what you need to do. You need to create a little chaos to understand what your next steps are in order to get rid of all that technical debt to make your company and your product better. That's how you have to start. And then from there, you'll get more 
stakeholders that are going to care because he caused a little chaos in order to bring the system up to date. That is not yours. That now is yours. (laughs) You actually touched upon something that I was telling someone about two weeks ago where it's that we have this mental model of what our system looks like. It gave us an architecture diagram because, you know, this was only built five years ago. But we now have the thought that all of this is perfect. And until you start unplugging things, you start doing some chaos engineering of what in this architecture diagram is actually correct? What is not? Do I really have a database in my high critical services or do I not? And then you can kind of really start thinking about understanding your system and build it to be better. And also one of the things is just because it says dev, don't assume it's dev. It might be prod. Just because it's called dev doesn't mean that it's dev. That is one of my biggest rules now that I've learned recently in the last three years. Because with cloud, it's a little bit different than on-premise. If that's the name, that's what it's going to stay. And most likely, it is what it is. But here, because we're so we're iterating so quickly, we try to fail fast to in order for us to learn from our mistakes and, and build our product. We dev becomes prod. <laughs> more more so now than it did before yeah. it brings me that to you know that portion you mentioned also earlier always ask questions like always poke holes at it if someone tells us oh no don't worry nothing is running here on production take a deep dive and try to find out what are some of those services or what are some of those dependencies that could be going on and i know from my time at uber it took forever for us to find out which of the 2,000 microservices are needed to just take a trip on the cloud. And it was like, uh, we don't know. We know they're running on prod, they're running on dev, but what is needed for this service to actually happen? Exactly. Sometimes just getting on the machine, and if you have root, which you should if you're a DevOps engineer, usually look at the history and then look at the the directories of who who has a, a home directory. People don't realize like the history can give you so much good nuggets about what's going on in this system. And and those are the things that help you figure out like like you said in Uber, like what what's running on here and who's using it and, and what is the system D Damon telling me and and like everything, right? And it's funny you mentioned that of take a look at the history because that was actually one of the things that I've always done, like reading postmortems, yeah. understanding history that's being run on systems, understanding past PRDs to try to get a better understanding. And a lot of it actually is because of that other point that you also touched upon, being afraid of asked questions. Like similar to you, I've also been like one of the only Latinas in the room and I'm like, I don't want to raise my hand in this class or in this meeting. I don't want to be the person that has to ask. But if I have ways of starting to do my own searching, so I make a more informed question, that gave me confidence. So that was one of the things that I was always doing. But now I tell people like, no, just ask the questions. Don't spend those five hours trying to look at history because the person next to you might actually know the answer in just two minutes. Yeah, exactly. And I noticed that just asking that question was literally like, oh, it was because of X, Y, and Z. Okay, cool. And then now that I know that, at least when I look at the history, I have some background of why this was this way. And now I can just pull out what I really care about in the history as opposed to saying, why is this happening and the flags in the first place? But it sucks being the first person to ask that question. And especially if it's just like you and a bunch of dudes, which usually it was. And I was at the time, I was usually the youngest too. I was like 22. Up until now, obviously, now I'm one of the oldest. But like at one point, I was the youngest. And also like age was a thing and being the only Latina in the room. And it, 
you know, and it's finance. Like it was scary. <laughs> That's the awesome part. We get to have folks like you, like me, organizations like Tecnologicas and Tequeria that allow for us to create spaces that are going to say, you're welcome here. Ask as many questions as you want. No question is going to be stupid because we've all had to start somewhere. And maybe you do get a chance to have Carmen as your teacher and get to pick their brain on what DevOps is. For that, I think that's all the questions that I had. Do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners that you have upcoming for you or just any words of advice? My advice is just keep trucking along. There's many Carmen's, there's many Anna's, there's many Jason's out there that are willing to help. And there's spaces now where we can ask those deep questions. Like you said, like the Caria, Latinas in Tech, Tecnologicas, Black Girls Can Code, Girls Who Code. There's so many spaces now where you can really dig in and find the community to uplift you and keep pushing you forward in your technology inquiries and your technology career path. So si se puede, keep going. I love it. What are some ways that folks can get in touch with you? You can go to my LinkedIn and if you, the LinkedIn will be the slash in slash MDC, S-A-E-N-Z. Or you can find me under Carmen Sanz at Decaria Slack or in Latinas and Tech Slack. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time with both of you. For links to all the information mentioned, visit our website at gremlin.com slash podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe to the Break Things on Purpose podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Our theme song is called Battle of Pogs by Komiku and is available on loyaltyfreakmusic.com.